Hello and welcome to Scran. I'm your host, Scotsman food and drink writer, Rosalind Erskine. We are the podcast that is bringing you the best from Scotland's culinary scene. Every fortnight, I'll be hosting great guests from celebrity chefs to distinguished distillers. Speaking of celebrity chefs, on the last episode, I mentioned that Nick Nairn was a friend of the podcast and will be sharing his cooking tips on each episode. So stay tuned for that. Hopefully I'll also give you some inspiration and tips for cooking and creating drinks at home as we face these uncertain times together. Coming up, I'll be chatting to celebrity chef Nick Nairn about his thoughts on the impact of coronavirus on the hospitality industry. And try and keep your business intact, keep your DNA, keep your intellectual property ready until the world comes back to life again. Plus, Nick also gives his tips on how to make a delicious whiskey sauce at home. A bit of uh, stock in there. I, I like mushrooms in it as well. A bit of stock and I could use an ox cube, reduce that down. Speaking of whiskey, I talked to Simon Aaron of Cask Trade on how and why investing in whiskey casks is an achievable venture. It's one of those products and assets that you can buy, that you can use all your senses to find out about. So smell, taste, history as well. And and, and the look of the whiskey. So there's many different ways of looking at whiskey. It's quite a romantic journey. It's not, how can I put it, a normal investment journey. And finally, I share a favourite lockdown meal and drink idea that you can recreate at home. The veggie lasagna is just really easy. It's an aubergine, courgette, pepper, fry them up. Make a really quick and easy white sauce. Hello everyone and welcome to episode five of season two of Scran. It's now June and I'm working from home still. I'm recording under a blanket which has been fun in this current boiling weather. Since Scotland went into phase one of lifting lockdown restrictions, more and more restaurants have reopened for takeaway and delivery of food, and even freshly poured pints and cocktails. It's a difficult time for us all, but it's so nice to see how these businesses are continuing to adapt to the situation. I've been enjoying trying new delivery options each week. If you're eating and drinking good scran at home too, I'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch with me on Twitter at Rosalind Erskine. This week, I chat to well-known chef and former TV colleague of mine during my time as the drinks expert on BBC's The Great Food Guys, Nick Nairn, about how he's adapting his businesses during this difficult time to what he's cooking at home. So, hi, Nick. Hey, Rosalind. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Are you getting on okay working from home? Well, you know, I'm not really working um, in the restaurant because the restaurant's shut. And I'm not working the cook school because the cook school's shut, and I'm not doing any food festivals or anything like that because they're all shut. I'm doing a lot of gardening, and I'm doing a lot of head scratching, trying <laughs> to work out where we are and where we're going to be going, and you know what we have to do to get there. And it is an extraordinary set of circumstances. I mean, the first extraordinary circumstance is this virus. You know, nothing like this has ever happened in my lifetime. And um, it's been absolutely devastating for the hospitality industry. And coming out of it, there's lots of chat around restaurants and hotels partly reopening. I don't think that's possible. I think for the independent restaurant sector, restaurants work when they're busy, when they're full, when there's buzz, when there's excitement, when there's passion, when you have to queue. You know, when, when you know you're in the right place. Uh, sorry, I'm just cooking some stock, <laughs> as you do. And, you know, if, if we have to social distance and stay two metres away and wear face masks and have perspex screens, nobody's going to want to come to that. But also, operating restaurants operating um, at 
of their capacity doesn't make any economic sense. So reopening uh, the restaurants at the moment for us, even if we were allowed to, wouldn't make any sense. And I'm sure the rest of the independent restaurant and hotel sector is feeling exactly the same thing. So when governments start giving you mixed messages and there's a lack of clarity and a lack of unity, as we saw from Boris and Nicola's differing stances, that's hugely unhelpful. It's unhelpful to the public and it's unhelpful to the hospitality industry. We need, you know, uh, we need clear messages at this time. It's my feeling that independent restaurants are going to have to remain closed until next year. Now, some of them will have the deep enough pockets to do that. Others are going to have to find a way of working with banks and landlords and HMRC, taxation, VAT, GAYE, and all the other costs that we have, and try and keep your business intact, keep your DNA, keep your intellectual property ready until the world comes back to life again. And that's only going to happen, I think, once there's a vaccine or there's a, a very robust contact tracing system that the public believe in. So, you know, the, all this talk of partial reopening scares me. And I worry about people's attitudes changing. I can see the roads are busier. There's more people out and about. Um, and we know from previous experience, the Spanish flu back in 1918 and then again in 1990, but we're also seeing it in Germany, that when you relax these shutdowns, these lockdowns too quickly, you get a second wave of the virus. And that could be more devastating, not just in terms of lost lives, but in the damage it does to to our industry. So an extraordinary set of challenges for the hospitality industry. And so do you think the road to recovery isn't necessarily like reopening for takeaway or delivery just now? Is it just sitting tight until oh, things are a bit more concrete in terms of, like you say, a vaccine or contact tracing? Well, it depends, obviously, on individual circumstance. So if you were an owner-operated restaurant and you owned your own premises, so you had no bank debt and no uh, rent, um, you're in a much stronger position to reopen on reduced turnover. However, if you're in a rented property and you're highly geared and you're a high volume, high turnover business, it just doesn't make any sense to, to, to reopen until the business is there to support the costs. Um, the fixed costs for, rest, for restaurants, they don't change. You know, So if, if, if you reopen on less than 100% of your turnover, you know, most of us work in 10% margins. It's almost impossible to make a business case. If you own the, the place outright or you've got plenty of capital reserves or you're willing to put your own personal money into your business and you can tough it out. I mean, we are, we're going to put a toe in the water. We're going to do a couple of things. We'll do a pop-up pizza uh, this coming weekend at, uh, at Lake and Teeth, you know, as a pickup. Um, you've got to phone in and book a slot and prepay and there'll be no no contact. Uh, the, the pieces will be left in a secure area, which is locked with hand sanitizer. The initial thing is uh, uh, to that um, has been very strong. So I think people are absolutely desperate for something different. <laughs> and maybe the prospect of not 
booking dinner tonight is very appealing to a lot of people. So we'll we'll do that. And also going to toy around with a, a Nick's at home delivery system where you've got a, a, a meal that you can take home, which is then reheated. You know, that makes it delivery a lot easier than if you were doing something hot, which, you know, tricky for the timing to make sure we get that uh, we get that right but all of that doesn't touch the size of what our business needs to to be open function at its full capacity and we can do that because i'm not furloughed so i can work the cook school's owned we own it we don't rent it so i don't have any of these costs on it so i can make a little bit of a business case for doing that but it's not going to restart my business in a positive side we're using the time to experiment with new models, new concepts, new ways of working. Obviously, not going to share those with you in a business sensitive, but there's a couple of things that are starting to feel like they might work. We don't know. But what we'll do is probably we'll put our toe in the water with certain things and just gauge public reaction. But honestly, at the moment, Nobody has the answers. Nobody knows it. It's just there are too many unknowns. What kind of scares me is the people who are going to be making the decisions in government are maybe not reaching out to industry and taking the temperature, getting industry's views on it. I see Stirling University is doing a feasibility study on the reopening of pubs because the government's a bit concerned that people might get a bit giddy because um, they haven't been out to the pub and they might be wanting to celebrate a bit. Um, now, that's Stirling University, and Stirling University is a mile away from here. And uh, well, I'm a doctor of Stirling University. Nobody's picked up the phone to me and said, look, you know, you have a restaurant in the town. You know, you are, I've been doing this for 35 years. What's your thoughts? So I worry that a lot of policy is going to be written by bureaucrats who don't really know the industry. And so we've been working on a set of rules that are not really fit for purpose. And that's a pretty scary prospect. Yeah, it's, um, it doesn't, it's not sounding great with the, the, you know, the government advice that's just come out for the UK and then Scotland's a bit different. And I don't think anybody at this point in time really knows whether they're coming or going, which doesn't really help. No. But um, just to sort of go back, you've mentioned your new restaurant next there. You're maybe doing a takeaway service or delivery service from there, but no, no, sorry. No, the, the takeaway service will be from the cook school. Cook school. At, at Lakeham and Teeth, at Portsmouth Teeth, yeah. And as for the reason I said, you know, I own the cook school, I've got no debt on it. I'm not furloughed. I can do that. Um, if if you start, you know, operating a rented premises, then your rent becomes due because you're you're doing business. Um, and, and that would be catastrophic. You know, that would put you uh, business pre pretty much straight away. Uh, so yeah, but next next on Henderson Street, you opened just a few weeks before lockdown, which um, was a, yes. <laughs> it seems like such a long time ago now that you had the, your opening party and it seems so weird to think back that there was that many people all just kind of milling about together. I know. I mean, what a great night it was. It was. It was a fab night and we had, I mean, if you remember, it was absolutely rammed. Yeah. So we put out, I think, 200 invites and 300 people came. So next, we had quite a long time in the planning Complete refurb. We shut for a week for a refurb, took all our staff off site up to the cook school at Lakeham and Teeth for retraining. Went all through the, the menu, the wine, the service, you know, probably the most structured restaurant opening I've ever done because we, 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 we did it properly. And 
when we, we reopened at the beginning of March, it flew. It was absolutely trading fantastically. And not only was it trading well, we're getting amazing reviews and fantastic feedback from our customers and our staff were loving it. You know, everybody likes to be part of a success story. So we invested quite a lot of cash in that. And, um, you know, we were looking forward to the proceeds of that. And, you know, there was every sign that that Nix was going to be a real smash hit. And then, poof, just turned off the taps. Same thing at the Cook School. We just finished this big extension uh, for a barbecue school in an outdoor area. And, again, that was a lot of money invested in that for something for the future, for something a bit different. And, um, again, yeah, it's just mothballed at the moment. So, yeah, tremendous frustration for us personally that we've put so much time and effort, Julia, I, my wife and my business partner, um, I put so much effort into our businesses and, you know, we're not getting any return on them at all. And now we're looking at survival, fighting for survival. You know, I've been doing this for 35 years. This is probably a, a, a low point. I've been, I've been back to the wall more than this, I, I think, in terms of, um, you know, how close you are to oblivion. Um, and we've got ideas and we've, we've, got, we've got some great people who are managing to keep around about us at the moment. And I think that's incredibly important that we, we keep our people close. And, you know, we, what, what we're looking for is timing. You know, when do we go? And when we go, we want to go properly. We want to open again and be running on all cylinders. We don't want to be dribbling back into existence. I, I really can't see how that's going to work for, for, for us. You know, on a positive side, never had more inquiries about cooking and learning how to cook than I have in the last six weeks. Been honestly unbelievable. Everybody suddenly discovered cooking and baking. So for somebody as a proprietor of a cook school, there's clearly an opportunity uh, there going forward. And, um, you know, we, we, we have a bit of a headache in, in that we have a lot of vouchers, you know, people have bought with a lot of events that had to be cancelled, you know, so we, we had celebrity chefs coming up, Phil Vickery and uh, Atul Kocher and, uh, you know, I had John Weber, the guy who opened the cook school with me and, and Alan Matheson, uh, his, his uh, number two. You know, we had them booked to come back again. We had all sorts of events. You know, and, and and this was this year, 2020, the good school business was 20 years old. And we planned a year of celebration. You know, we had James Martin up, you know, Axel's been up already. Paul Rankin was coming, you know. But we had all of these events planned for 2020. It was the year of celebration. And instead, it's been a year of trying to find, trying to find our feet. Yeah, it's, it's been very strange and it kind of feels like it all happened very quickly. Is there anything specific that you've been cooking during lockdown that you've really enjoyed? Yes, I've got obsessed with cooking cheese scones. Oh yeah, me too. I've tried your cheese scones and they are really good <laughs> and really easy. Oh, so, I, I mean, I have I have the last lot I made. So I found a truckle of, a small truckle of Isle of Mull cheddar. Uh, which I read must be a good two years old. So I split it open yesterday. Yesterday was a bit colder. And I had got some Graham's Gold Top milk and Graham's Organic Butter. Uh, so I made cheese scones using those ingredients. And the secret with, with cheese scones and scones in general is to weigh everything out first, make sure that the fat, that's the cheese, the butter, is really cold. 
um, sift the flour, super important. With a fine sieve, get some air and get all the, the lumps out of it. Add your baking powder and salt, and I put a little bit of mustard and a little pinch of cayenne pepper in it as well, the mustard powder, English mustard powder. And then grate on the, a box grater, grate the butter and rub that in. Grate the cheese and then don't rub that in too much. And then I add milk. Now, the recipe I put up on Twitter had was slightly wrong. The first one, I corrected it. Uh, so for 240 grams of flour, it's, it's, uh, it's 160 mils of milk. And I use that Graham's Gold Top. I have got plenty of fat in it. And uh, bring that together to a soft batter and then literally just push it out. Don't roll it. Just push it out into a circle. And then I use a scraper to cut it into wedges, which means I'm not overworking it. So the wedges, I think, work much better than the rounds and there's no waste. And bake it in a really hot oven. So you, it, it wants to be slightly sticky, really hot oven, 220 degrees centigrade for the first 10 minutes, and then reduce the temperature then to 200 for the second, sort of seven to 10 minutes, depending on the size of the scones. And then let them rest for about 10 minutes in a cooling rack before you split them open and plenty more of that organic butter on them and maybe just a little bit of that mild and soft sea salt. Oh. They are really good. Oh. <laughs> I'll need to make more after this because yeah, I really enjoyed them. There were eight this morning and I've been in the garden most of the day. There's only two left when I came back up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you better grab them quickly. <laughs> <laughs> you do. Right, so I've just got some quick fire questions. Okay, fine. So very quickly, um, these are some quick fire questions that we have in a section of the podcast, which are to do with food. So are you ready? Yeah. Okay, so whenever I'm hungry, I think of... Uh, cheese on toast. Comfort food for me is? Noodles. My favourite childhood dessert is? Oh, blancmange. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you, my adult dessert, my, my guilty secret, is tinned custard and uh, strawberry jam. Oh, nice. Mm. Cold, cold. My food heaven is? Ah, uh, my food heaven. Langoustines, a uh, really good uh, glass of uh, uh, a white burgundy. A bonfire, my wife, the kids, uh, maybe a barbecue going and some really nice ribeye steak, some Campbell gold ribeye, big old piece just cooking away on the uh, on the barbecue and a bit of salad. That's my idea of food heaven. And my food hell. Processed foods, especially things like vegetarian burgers or vegetarian sausages. What's that all about? Get a, get a grip. <laughs> Somebody did a vegetarian sausage roll. No, yeah. it's wrong. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, they've also now got vegan versions of that, but let's not go there. <laughs> oh. Thank you very much, Nick. No problem. Thanks, Nick. It was great to hear his thoughts on the current situation as well as having some lighthearted chat as well. If you want a great beer but don't want all the booze and calories, check out Genius Craft Lager. The UK's first light craft lager, Genius, is 3% ABV and 79 calories per can. Less than an apple. It's brewed with the finest Pilsner malts and three hop varieties. Perfect after a workout, with a barbecue or after one of those lockdown days. Available in sparse stores across Scotland and online from Flavourly.com. Now for a new feature of Scram, Nick Nairn will be jumping back into the kitchen to share his cooking tips on episodes of Scram. This week he discusses how to make a delicious whiskey sauce, ideal for a steak night at home. My name is Nick Nairn and these are my cooking tips 
for grand listening. Uh, whiskey scars needs to be softened with a bit of butter, a bit of uh, stock in there. I, I like mushrooms in it as well. A bit of stock, and I can use an ox cube, reduce that down, a splash of whiskey, some double cream, and lots and lots of crushed black pepper. Whiskey sauce is something I'd only really have at a restaurant, but it's nice to know how easy it is to make at home. It's great with steak, chicken balmoral and haggis. So thanks Nick for sharing that tip with us. Now from whiskey sauce to whiskey casks. Simon Aaron from Cask Trade gives some clarity on cask investment and why it's a more romantic way to invest money than on the stock market. Okay, so hi Simon, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And how are you? Fine, yeah. Enjoying the lovely warm weather? Unfortunately, I'm stuck, stuck in my office, but... Uh... Um, I did enjoy it on the weekend. That was great. Yeah. Wesley, you're here today to talk to me about the benefits of investing in a whiskey cask or casks. Could you just sort of, uh, it's not something I know a lot about. So if we start at the beginning, why is investing in a cask a good investment? So casks do a couple of unique things as part of an asset. So, you know, everyone has invested in artwork and gold and silver, and wine for many years. But whiskey inside a cask is a maturing product. And it appreciates in value over certain amounts of time. It's one of those products and assets that you can buy that you can use all your senses to find out about. So smell, taste, history as well, and, and, and the look of the whiskey. So there's many different ways of looking at whiskey. It's quite a romantic journey. It's not, how can I put it, a normal investment journey. And so people that do get involved in whiskey often or not, appreciate how it gets better with age and appreciating value and also can appreciate that the whiskey just gets better and is in a, you know, is delicious. And if it comes from a good distillery with good wood, that um, it's a wonderful appreciating asset. And what would you say are the key benefits of buying a cask? The benefits are, uh, as a long-term investment, it's a pretty safe investment. It's unregulated which means there is no index, there's no market specifically for it because casks are pretty unique. Every every cask, even two casks that were filled on the same day at the same distillery uh, can interact with the wood differently. So it is an unregulated market, but generally the whiskey matures in a pretty uniform way with quite a unique taste depending on where it's coming from in Scotland and which distiller is making it. And it gets better with age. It's not a short-term investment. It's not something that someone should look to buy and sell within a matter of months or even a year. Whiskey is uh, released onto the market generally at significant dates, and that's for a reason. So we all know that uh, whiskey is, is, is not single malt until it's three years old, and when you walk through duty-free, you'll see whiskey that's 8, 10, 12, 15, 18 years old and older. And these significant dates are important because it gives a chance for the whiskey to mature in different ways, in different woods, and interact with the wood. And um, it is a longer-term investment. So if someone buys a three-, four-year-old whiskey, they're looking at holding it until it's at least eight or ten years old. People need to understand that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good, safe, long-term investment. And um, once you've invested in a cask, can you go to the distillery and sample the whiskey or do you have to do you have to wait until it's ready? Can you sort of be quite interactive with your investment? So, yes, we uh, pride ourselves at Cask Trade of making sure that it is the right kind of journey for investors and lovers of whiskey. 
So a lot of the aged whiskey that we provide, the investment grade stuff that's kind of eight to 12 years old already when people buy it from me, they can sample it. I draw samples from all of the casks. I regauge them. Regaging is a process of doing a little bit of a health check, checking how much whiskey or liters of alcohol are left in the cask. We take a look at the color, the smell, and how it's maturing. My co-directors have all been in the business uh, for many years. They've all got quite exceptional uh, palettes, especially Sir Colin Hamden White. And they can tell very, very quickly how the whiskey is doing, how long it will go for, when it should be bottled. It's very much a journey of the senses. As far as visiting the casks, we encourage our customers to visit, but we also encourage them to organize it beforehand. All casks are held in bond. These bonded warehouses are regulated by HMRC. And you can't just walk into a bonded warehouse. I'm sure people appreciate it. But a lot of the distilleries are more than accommodating, very, very friendly. Some warehouses are closed to the public altogether. But samples are taken regularly. I mean, if someone's got a, a cask that's, let's say, more than 12 or 15 years old, we encourage them to, to ask us for samples on a regular basis to see how it's maturing. A lot of the casks that we sell are actually taken on different parts of their historic journey by different investors. Someone might buy a whiskey that's three years old, keep it till it's eight or 10, take the profit. Someone that buys it at 10 might take it to 20. So it, it is a real journey. The casks themselves uh, are held in ideal conditions. We don't encourage moving them much. We like to leave them where they are. And we have lots of varieties of woods, finishes for our clients and um, we try and make it as interactive as and as enjoyable as possible it's not just sort of buying stocks and shares or gold bullion for instance yeah because it's one of those things that i don't really understand the stock market but it's one of those things that you know like you say you can you can see it and you can you can understand everyone can understand the process of making whiskey so it's you can understand where your money's going and how it's going to in time make you money rather than this whole like big barrage of numbers that you might not really understand so it's, it's it's a really good idea for anyone that doesn't know say me if I had some money and I wanted to invest in a cask what, what's your kind of starting price what would your advice be for a complete novice so at the moment we don't sell any new new make whiskey okay because we we try and do some financial modeling on all of our whiskey and new make needs to sit for three three years before anybody can move it or start to sample it. Although, you know, there are plenty of people that uh, can sample new make. So a three or four-year-old whiskey, our starting price is 1,200 to 1,500 pounds. People can't believe that because that's for at least uh, 150 to 200 liters of single malt whiskey that's already three or four years old. The more expensive stuff, the stuff that is 40 years old or even 50 years old, goes into the hundreds of thousands of pounds. Mm -hmm. At the older uh, range, if there's still a very strong level of alcohol in there, they can go for many years, but often or not, the older the whiskey, the weaker it is. And if the whiskey below, it falls below a 40% of alcohol, it can no longer be called whiskey. It greatly devalues in, in a very, very quick way. So it does have a shelf life, but it's a very long shelf life. Anyone can get involved. Anyone can buy at 1,500 or 2,000 pounds for a youngish whiskey, but not new make. And anyone can dip in and out at the significant dates 
So when we talk to people about the possible outcomes of their task, we normally talk at three years, five years, seven years, and 10 years, depending on what age they buy at to begin with. And um, can you bottle the whiskey or is that something that needs to be done yourself? No, I mean, um, we use six different bottling plants in Scotland. Mm -hmm. We are fairly, well, we're very opaque with the pricing and the packaging. We can arrange everything. We have licenses to bottle, distribute, sell in retail as well. We are not bottlers, by the way. Mm -hmm. That's something we don't do because 50% of our customers are independent bottlers from all over the world and we don't want to compete with them. So we can arrange bottling, labeling, design, packaging, shipping, anything that uh, the client requires at the end of that journey. You know, it's entirely up to the customer. The customer has the options to trade, to sell, to reinvest, to bottle, to gift if they want to, or to, to sell to another bottler that will put it on a shelf in a shop. And from your experience, what type of people usually are out there buying whiskey casks? Oh, wow. <laughs> Every, there, there's normally about four different types of people that buy. So whiskey enthusiasts and whiskey associations, clubs, they buy casks from us from all over the world. We've got customers all over the former Soviet Union, mainland Europe, South America, America, Asia, everywhere. Uh, and they'll buy a cask, they'll bottle it and they will sell it amongst themselves or gift it amongst the association. Then you've got independent bottlers that run a commercial business that bottle, let's say, six to 12 casks a year and sell them into specialist whiskey shops. And then you've got educated investors that know about whiskey and know about the different distilleries and which ones are have got more brand awareness and perhaps more value and they will buy, invest. So they'll hold for three, for five, for 10 years, uh, the whiskey casks as they mature. And then right at the other scale, you've got the pure investors that are coming to cast trade and saying, right, um, I want to buy something that's at least 12 years old. I want your projection based on bottle prices uh, and appreciation rates of the whiskey being 21 years or 30 years old, please tell me what the financial models are. And some of those would enjoy drinking whiskey. They may not know a lot about it. And some of them can't even stand the smell of the stuff, but they like investing in alternative investments. That's quite funny. I'm trying to send them samples. They'll be like, no, no, it's fine. <laughs> I don't want to smell it. <laughs> we do. We, we send out samples all over the world every day. Wow. Because we sample a lot of the casks. Listen, the one thing that people need to know about as well is that there isn't an endless supply of casks. It's a very, very small part of the market. I have people coming to me and wanting to, to spend a lot of money on casks of whiskey, and there just isn't the supply of it. So it is a commodity. It is rare. And it's a really nice journey. So a lot of people want to do it, but they, they it, it's not done on a big scale. So whatever is available does move pretty quickly. So if I do get a rare cask, it can last minutes on my list mm -hmm. and maybe a few weeks, but not long. So can you just tell me a, bit, a little bit about cask trade and what it is you do and what you can offer people? So if you don't mind, it goes back to how I came into the industry. I was, I was going to Scotland regularly, doing a lot of distillery tours, meeting a lot of people and, and, and having a great time as a hobby because I came from a, a completely different tech background. And um, I started collecting bottles. And then I found out that I could buy whole casks of whiskey from some of my favorite distilleries. And so I started buying casks 
I started trading them. I had a really difficult time buying casks. There was no real marketplace. So if you imagine a market like buying, I don't know, 20 years ago, antique jewelry before Sotheby's and Bonhams, mm-hmm. you'd, have, you'd really struggle to sell that piece of jewelry or that particular diamond. Um, and you might go down to a pawnbroker's or you might go into a, into a jewelry shop and try and sell it. The analogy that I'm trying to, to use is one of a very closed market. And so that was exactly the same for casks. You'd have to go back to where you bought it from. Maybe the distillery would buy it back from you or someone in the trade, but it wasn't easy. And after buying and selling casks for 13, 13 years, I decided to set up my own company to create a marketplace somewhere where people could trade casks, buy, sell, bottle them, sample them, set up an auction website called Auction Your Cask. And we sell casks online. It's an online auction. There are lots of bottle auctions, but there's very few cask auctions. You know, so people have got an exit for casks. They've got a way of buying casks. They've got a way of trading it. And that's ideally what I wanted to create. There really wasn't a marketplace to speak of for people wanting to enjoy or invest in cask. Nice. So that's that, that's pretty much how you became involved in whiskey then. You were, you were a fan. It was a hobby and it's just developed into this um, business. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you collect all the bottles and you run out of space and they're quite difficult because you end up, you know, opening some and enjoying some, but cataloging them and storing them. And, you know, casks are a lot easier. You take a little 20 CL sample and you keep it in bonded stock and you sell it. Yeah, someone else deals with it. <laughs> yes, yes. It is, it's much easier. And it's just as enjoyable. Uh, when, when I first started buying casks, you, re- you, you rarely knew exactly how much liquid you had. You couldn't go and visit them. You couldn't take samples only by request. And we kind of opened all of that up for people so that they can sort of enjoy the experience. It's all about enjoying buying an alternative asset. Some people buy, you know, classic cars. Some people buy antiques, artwork. There's not much difference except you use the, the, another sense, which is taste. And you can go and visit the casks and, and enjoy the whole journey. It's, it makes a big difference, big difference. Which is good. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much. That was uh, really interesting to find out more. And thank you for your time. It's a pleasure, Ross. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Speak to you later. Bye. I didn't realise buying a cask was quite so accessible. So thanks very much to Simon for his insight. Finally, here's my lockdown meal of choice and a drink that you can try at home. Hello and welcome back to my kitchen in Glasgow where I'm going to just talk you through some of my lockdown cuisine, so the food and drink that I've been enjoying over the last couple of weeks. I've moved to the stage of lockdown where I'm trying to recreate favourite dishes that my mum makes. Um, I've not seen her and my dad for quite a long time and we would have had a few family gatherings by now so I'm trying to kind of recreate that here. One of the things that she makes is a really good vegetarian lasagna so I've been making that quite a lot and I've baked a few batches of these American style oat cookies that we used to make when I was younger but because I've got quite a lot of drinks lying around I've added some nice spice rum and raisins so they're very good. The veggie lasagna is just really easy, it's an aubergine, courgette, pepper, fry them up, make a really quick and easy white sauce, add some chopped tomatoes, your lasagna sheets if you can find them and then just bake it in the oven, it's great. But it's been really warm, so I've not been making that too much. It's been another few weeks of trying uh, some takeaways. More and more places have opened, which is really nice to see. 
So I've had a great curry from Mother India, which is a brilliant, brilliant curry place in Glasgow. It's been there for a long time. I've had an amazing cheese and meats picnic platter from Bar Brett, who recently just reopened, just in time for the sunny weather, so it was great timing for them. And some more amazing pub grub and now drinks from the dam, so they've got their licence up and running, so you can walk by their big windows, which have sliding doors that open the full way out, and you can pick up a freshly poured pint. So speaking of drinks, it's just to, to fit in with the weather, it's been so sunny. I've mainly been drinking summery cocktails and looking for kind of refreshing drinks as the weather's been so good and I recently got a Create My Cocktail delivery from The Gate which is a pub in, on the Gallow Gate in Glasgow kind of towards the east end. Uh, you can collect from there or you can uh, have them deliver and you fill out a very short questionnaire online and they just create a bespoke cocktail for you as if, as if you were standing at the bar, although you're not. And Edinburgh Gin have recently released a new Raspberry Gin Fizz which is great for this warm weather, really nice cold over ice or you could pop a tiny bit of it in some Prosecco but I wouldn't go too far with that because it's already got sparkling wine in it. It's really nice if you like gin and it's really sweet and very summery so that's what I would be having round about now. Uh, so I hope that's some, given you some good ideas for what you could eat and drink at home and I hope everyone's getting on well. Cheers! Thanks again to our guests Nick Nairn and Simon Aaron, providing us with a very patriotic episode this week. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We'll be back on the 19th of June for another episode of Scran. I hope this season gives you all some light relief from our current circumstances. This episode was presented and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Morvan McIntyre. You can download Scran wherever you listen to your podcasts, but for exclusive, interactive, immersive content, download the NTL app for iOS and Android. If you like what you heard, please rate and review Scran and help other listeners to discover us too. This is a Laudable production for The Scotsman. You can find out more about Laudable and its other local podcasts by following us on social media, on Twitter where we are at Laudable Pods and Instagram by searching for Laudable underscore podcasts. <laughs>